Ngadlu Tumbundi, Ngadlu Gana, Yarchanga Inbarendi. We acknowledge that we are meeting on the land of the Ghana people. We respect their spiritual relationship with their country. We also acknowledge the Ghana people as the custodians of the Adelaide region and that their cultural and heritage beliefs are still as important to the living Ghana people today. Good afternoon, everyone. My name's Angela Savage, and I'm absolutely delighted to be here um, to welcome you to this afternoon's session, The Centred Victim, with two writers who have, to quote from the festival program, turned the crime genre on its head. Jacqueline Bublitz, who is going to be beaming in from New Zealand, and Laura Elizabeth Woolett. Jacqueline Rock Bublitz is a writer, feminist, and arachnophobe. She wrote her debut novel, I stumble every time I read this, debut, I can't believe, before you knew my name is a debut novel. It's so accomplished. Jacqueline wrote it after spending a summer in New York where she hung around morgues and the dark corners of city parks and the human psyche for far too long. The haunting, strangely joyous, before you knew my name, tells of Alice Lee arriving in New York with just a camera and hope, destined to be a Jane Doe one month later. Laura Elizabeth Woollett is the author of a short story collection, The Love of a Bad Man, shortlisted for the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Fiction, and two novels, Beautiful Revolutionary, shortlisted for the 2019 Prime Minister's Literary Award for Fiction, and her 2021 release, The Newcomer. The Newcomer is a smart, provocative portrait of prejudice, violence, and grief, which fictionalises an infamous 2002 murder on Norfolk Island. Please join me in welcoming Jacqueline and Laura. Hi, Jacqueline. Hello. Lovely to Hello. see you. Lovely so to see you. I so wish I was there. Oh, no, we'd love to have you in person, but we're very glad that you could beam in um, and be with us. <laughs> um, this, this hybrid way of being, it's the way of our future, isn't it? Look, congratulations mm -hmm. to both of you on these respective novels. They're both outstanding, truly compelling reads. Um, you know, sometimes when you offer to chair a session, you never know what you're going to get, but I, was, I got lucky with this one. I really enjoyed these books. Um, Jacqueline, building on the hints that you dropped in your bio, I wonder if you'd start by telling us the origins of the story in Before You Knew My Name, which I've got here. <laughs> sure. So I had the idea for uh, what eventually, after many iterations, became you know, the, the book that you just held up uh, back in 2014. Um, much like the newcomer, uh, Before You Knew My Name, you know, has it sort of it's uh, the genesis came from a real life um, murder and uh, there was a young woman in Melbourne uh, where I was living or had been living for quite some time she was murdered in the botanic gardens on her way to work one morning name so Renee Lau uh, was visiting from Hong Kong I believe she was a or Hong Kong or Chinese national, and I try to get the details of her life right, but I also try to stay a little bit away from her because as much as she inspired um, the story, um, it is very not, it is very much not about her and what happened to her. And I want to be respectful of that and, and her privacy. And so she was murdered going to work in the park uh, down the road from where I lived at the time. And also where I used to run the tan, anybody who's familiar with Melbourne um, and likes to go for a run, we, we run the tan quite regularly. And I 
most mornings at that time uh, would be um, there running uh, right around the place that somebody, a jogger, found her body. And so for the first time, not only could I identify in some way with with the young woman who'd been murdered because this this came after Jill Ma so there was there had been a lot going on at the time around women's safety in Melbourne um not only was I thinking about Renee I was thinking about that jogger what what must that have been like just putting on your you know your shoes at 5 a.m 6 a.m and uh you encounter what was obviously a really um something really terrible had happened mm. there, you know, to her body and, and to her. And so that was really just the, the kernel, the nugget, like what would it be like not only to to be her, um, something, you know, to have, to have been wandering a street that I had wandered so many times, you know, in my 20s and 30s in the dark, but what would it be like to be the person who found her body um, and really um, took me a while because that's not really um, a plot, is it? Um, so I, I lived with that idea for a long while and then the characters grew out of that. Fantastic. And I will come back because the dual narrative is a really interesting structural choice and I'd like to come back to that. Um, Laura, in the acknowledgements of the newcomer, you mentioned visiting the island that inspired the book, um, though at the time you were working on quite a different project. So tell us how the newcomer took over. Yeah, I mean, I actually wasn't working on anything yet, but I got funding to visit Norfolk Island to research a completely different book, which I, I won't go into the details of it because I aborted that project pretty quickly. But um, yeah, uh, the book began, I guess, in um, 2018. Uh, that was the year that I was 28. And um, it was quite a bad year for me. Overall, like I, mental health-wise, I wasn't in a great place. I, um, yeah, I was just like questioning myself a lot that year. I had a lot of insecurities and stuff, and um, it, it was quite a low point in my life. Uh, and I wasn't writing, and I didn't didn't write for about a year and a half. Uh, but during that time, I did have the good fortune of being able to visit Norfolk Island for the first time, and that kind of really took me out of myself, just the beauty of the island and the strangeness of this place uh, really struck me. Um, it was like my serotonin just went through the roof being in this place and yeah, I, I just spent a week walking around and, you know, looking around and um, after that was like, you know, I, I really, I can't not write about this place because it's so striking. Uh, but being a true crime consumer, I did know about the murder of Janelle Patton. I had read a book about the case before visiting the island and I had, you know, listened to the case file episode about it. Um, for people not familiar with the case, she was a woman in her late 20s from Sydney who, um, yeah, at the age of 27, decided to leave her career in finance in Sydney and just start a new life on Norfolk Island and um, working pretty basic casual jobs as a hotel maid and uh, that's what she was doing and she spent two years there and was murdered in 2002. Um, yeah, so I, I, while I was on the island I actually visited the location where her body was found. Um, yeah, and it was such a strange experience because it... Um, like, the island is so, like, strikingly beautiful. It was golden hour, you know, the sun was coming down in this beautiful way. Cows were frolicking. 
Um, you know, you walk to the cliffs and the ocean is just right there and it's all you can see. Uh, but then also, like, in the, in the back of my mind, it's like, wow, something horrible happened here. Yes. Um, so that really struck me. And then the next day, I flew home to Melbourne and um, the murder of Eurydice Dixon was in the news. So, yeah, much like Jacqueline, it, it was kind of um, that collision, I guess, of something familiar as well. Um, all these things coming together. Yeah. And, um, but after that point, it still took me six months to actually be in a state where I wanted to write and to really feel like I had a grasp of what I wanted to do. Fantastic. There, yeah. there, it's, there is something, something about us writers that, you know, we visit really beautiful places and we just people them in our imagination with dead bodies. I don't know what, <laughs> where that comes from, that instinct. But I think that having had that impulse as well to, like, to be so moved by a place, to mm. want to be able to write about that. And I actually want to come back to that question of um, what it means to write about a place you love when you're writing violence. Um, but the protagonists in both these stories... Um, seem to burst with life from the page. They are such vivid creations. And that's an astonishing achievement because given that they're both um, victims of violent crimes. And I'm not saying this, there's no spoilers here, okay? We, we know from the onset of these books um, who the victims are. So Jacqueline, tell us about Alice Lee. Tell us where Alice came from mm. and, and so, what she is. <laughs> Alice Lee, um, who I sometimes have to remind myself is not actually a real person. She, um, I've just been living with her for so long. But in the beginning, I had no idea uh, who my my victim, sounds awful, doesn't it, but who my victim was going to be. Um, I knew that I wanted to um, explore this notion of the, of the perfect victim um, and uh, to, to write about a, a young woman. Um, but the, the details eluded me for a while, and then I was just sitting on um, on my bed in, this, in a studio in, in, in New York, really starting to panic a bit. And she just she came to me um, so strongly, so clearly, as if she'd always been there. It's still quite it's still quite a strange thing. I've kind of given myself goosebumps to think about. Nothing else in the book was as easy as um, meeting and then then writing Alice Lee. She is uh, just turned 18. She's from Wisconsin. I wanted her to be from Michigan, uh, where I had spent a lot of time. Uh, but the um, some of their laws around um, statutory rape, etc., didn't didn't work for me. So sometimes the decisions you know that we make are as um, kind of simple as, oh, that's that's not you know that's not going to work. So she's from from the Midwest, um, a place I have you know some familiarity with, having gone to high school there, and she gets on a bus to New York City, the place where she was conceived, um, and uh, so begins what should be an epic you know, journey for this plucky, um, very resourceful, yet somewhat naive teenager. Um, but as you mentioned, uh, a month later, she, um, her body is found on the banks of the Hudson River. And she's, that's right, she's dubbed Riverside Jane, as in a Jane Doe, by the press, but she wants to be known and to tell her own story. She says the chance to speak for herself, to be known for more than her ending, which is a very strong theme in this book. Were you conscious that using a deceased narrator might be risky, or was the yeah like you said <laughs> yeah. yeah how did how did how did you feel about going there? <laughs> 
There were there were two things. I mean, I was a little bit um, maybe ignorant of of the risk in the beginning. I wasn't. Um, I wasn't. I didn't have an agent or a publisher waiting for this book. I was really just having the the time of my life. You know finally writing in my late 30s after just thinking about it but I had come across an article online saying you know if you want to kill your novel have a dead narrator I'm like ah oh. <laughs> and so I did it was, the, that was that's a pretty strong kind of um, indictment against having a, a, a dead narrator I was also really conscious of um, coming up against uh, The Lovely Bones by Alice Seabold um, so I've been really open that um the Lovely Bones, which has a, a deceased narrator, um, Susie Salmon, is an, you know, an inspiration of, of mine. And I wanted to, um, in some ways, you know, pay homage to, to sure. that book. Sure. Um, but the risk, the risk of um, kind of coming too close uh, to, to what had already been done um, quite well, um, mm. you know, that's a hugely successful book, was something that um, weighed on my mind as well. But to, to go back to the point around how sort of clearly um, and strongly, Alice Lee sort of sat down beside me and, and, and started to tell her story. I, I stopped worrying about it pretty quickly. I love that. There's a, there's a phenomenon known as the um, illusion of independent agency, and a lot of writers have it. They talk about their characters as real people. You know, um, Alice yeah. Walker used to talk about her characters turning up with their baggage at the door um, mm. and sitting down and taking over her house. So this is very... It sounds a bit crazy, but it's actually very common ground. Um, <laughs> And I have to say, uh, Alice's voice is so compelling uh, and she, you're so drawn to her that when I got to the point in the story where she's about to be killed, I actually had to put the book aside. I was too upset. I couldn't go there. Um, but then you, you handled that in incredibly well and I will come back to that. But, but how, how important was it to you that readers care about Alice, that feel that, that strong emotional attachment to her? It's the whole purpose of, of the book. I think we, um, you know, we see these um, real-life victims um, of, of this type of crime. We don't learn nearly enough about them. They become, um, you know, basically the worst thing that happened to them. And often, you know, the, the, the worst, uh, you know, the, the more terrible the crime, the more the, the murderer or the perpetrator um, is, is the one who has the story told about them. So I thought, what if I, what if I sort of pull that back and say, hey, no, you know, just a reminder. She's re she's a you know, obviously Alice is not real, but she's a real she's a real person. This 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 woman that you're reading about, and sometimes, you know, her life has been turned into entertainment. It's like, no, stop. She's a um, she was a real person with her own story. She is not just the thing that you know the worst thing that happened to her. So it was, you know, vitally mm. important to me. And again, mm. she um, she made that easy. I'm glad though that it's not just me enjoying her company. It's nice to hear. <laughs> oh no, it was, it was such a powerful um, such a powerful experience. But I want to talk now about Paulina Novak, who is at the centre of Laura's um, novel and a very different approach. You've taken a very different approach to. The depiction of your victim. Describe Paulina's character for us. Um, divisive, <laughs> I guess. I've had some very strong reactions to her, um, some of them positive, some ne negative, but uh, she's loud, she's messy, uh, she likes to take the piss, she likes to get on the piss. Um, she, like, ultimately, I, I, I really, I see her as a person who has done the right thing for most of her life, 
and it hasn't worked out for her and she's gotten hurt, badly hurt. And so we meet her at a point in her life where, you know, things are kind of falling apart for her. She's kind of on a downhill ride and, um, yeah, she's kind of, um, you know, what started as probably drinking to have fun to get over a breakup uh, actually becomes a drinking problem and... Um, yeah, she's got a very close relationship with her mother, but it's also very, very fraught and complicated, and there's a lot of um, push and pull and codependency as well. So she has a tendency sometimes, especially with her mother, to act like a bit of a spoiled brat. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, you know, I, I think she also has a lot of great qualities as well. And, look, the, the relationship between mother and daughter is incredibly... Depicted, it's quite, it's quite extraordinary. Um, but I, I've got my notes about, you know, Paulina. It's like unlikable, her own worst enemy, a mess of bad decisions. Mm. Um, you know, I just wanted to shake her. Yeah. Um, it's funny uh, having those two reactions to the different characters. One I wanted to hug, and one I just wanted to shake and say, "Get your act together." <laughs> um, but I think that's the genius of the book because, and I've heard you talk about this. Um, you really put us on the spot as readers about our impulse to blame the victim. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, so it was a really deliberate decision that I made not to be too interior in my depiction of Paulina because, I mean, when I was first conceiving of the book, I thought it might be a bit more like Jacqueline's and actually show her life and show her past and stuff, but I got really caught up in... Um, the storytelling and just having action and dialogue and presenting this character mostly from the outside. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, like empathy isn't passive, it's active. And you have to join the dots sometimes. You have to be able to look at a person and not know everything about them, not know their past, not know the worst thing that, that's ever happened to them and still see them as human. Um, so I, I kind of, yeah, I give that to readers. I let them get to know her as things are happening to her and what she reveals of her past, you know, it comes across in dialogue and stuff mm. and you have to already be kind of invested by that point. Yes. Yeah. I think, like I said, I think this is a genius work because you really do push, you know, you're testing the limits of our empathy mm. in a very powerful way. Like it, you call it and... Um, you know, it's like, okay, what if Paulina does this? Would you blame her now? Okay, how about if she does this? Would yeah. you blame her now? And it's, yeah, it's, it's very compelling. And, um, you know, I know some people kind of balk at unlikable characters, and I don't think she is unlikable. I think there's, um, there, there, she does have redeeming qualities, as you mm -hmm. say, um, but I really think that's it's so cleverly done, um, the way you t sort of take us there. But I'm also aware that, you know, this is a fictional representation of a murder victim. You know, it's based on a real-life uh, person. Um, and I wondered how do you negotiate that, particularly when the murder has taken place in living memory. Did you... How did you, in your own conscious, feel, like, you know, thinking, OK, what if Janelle's family read this? How would they feel about it? Were you conscious mm. of that at all, or did you just have to put that aside? Um, I guess, to some extent, I put it aside, but... It was always there in the back of my mind, I guess, but I mean, my previous book, Beautiful Revolutionary, was about true events as well. That was um, historical fiction, 
centered around the Jonestown tragedy. And that stuck a lot more closely to truth. And I actually did a lot more research for that. I interviewed people who were involved. Um, and I think dealing with survivors firsthand, you know, like people, people would talk to me and wish me luck with it, but then they'd be like, oh, you know, I'm not that interested in reading it because they, they lived it, that's the thing. And I think, um, yeah, you know, there's always the chance that the victim's family might read it, but also it's not written for them, it's written for people who haven't had the experience of loving someone and have that, you know, the most horrible thing happen to them and then having it plastered all over the news. You know, that's, um, they've already lived through that, so it's not something I really thought, oh, they might stumble upon this and read it for entertainment. Like, I don't think that's a real likely situation. Um, but I guess I, I was navigating it in the sense of, um, you know, writing a murder set on an island that resembles Norfolk Island, it was always going to be compared to that case. So I just kind of, to some extent, leaned into that. Um, there were aspects of Janelle's story which I was really drawn to, and I think um, I think it's yeah the similarities. I was at a similar point in my life in my late twenties when I was thinking about the story as she was when she decided to move to the island. So that really drew me to the story. Um, her family relationships are all very different from Paulina's, so. Mm. I was mostly just taking really basic, not the most personal autobiographical details, like, um, yeah, she worked in finance, uh, same age, and the murder is similar, but um, all the relationships and stuff yep. are fictional, and I didn't want anyone to read it as a historical retelling, sure. like Beautiful Revolutionary might be read, you know? Sure, sure. Interesting, really interesting. Um, I'm also interested in the synergy, I mean, of the centred victims appearing in two novels released in Australia in the same year, mm -hmm. um, in 2021. So, and, I, and it's interesting you mentioned Alice Seabold because that was one of the antecedents I thought of. Um, Jacqueline, you know, that was 20, 2002, that release. Um, mm -hmm. And then Emily <laughs> Maguire's An Isolated Incident of 2016 mm -hmm. was the only other one I could think of that had, that had done, that was in the sort of same... Um, vain is what the two of you were doing. How do you account for your... I mean, you've talked a little bit about this, Jacqueline, already in terms of those real-life cases that were happening um, around you. Do you think there's something in the zeitgeist at the moment that's calling on us to respond in a different way to, to the notion of the victim, and particularly when the victim is a woman? I think... We're trying, and I think that, um, you know, the, the Me Too movement, um, just to use that as an example, um, you know, I, I pitched um, originally to my agent um, the story as, you know, the lovely bones for the Me Too era. Um, I was conscious, um, especially when I was um, living in, in New York in, in 2015, the conversation's really starting to happen about intersectionality and about accountability. Um, but I also think that we've just been saturated because we moved into an era where not only did you have these sort of real life cases that have been sort of happening, you know, far too frequently since, since you know, I, well, 
for as long as I can remember and far before, but with, with podcasts and streaming services. And so it wasn't so much books for me, but for the, for the last, um, you know, certainly the decade that I was uh, thinking about and then writing before you knew my name, dead, dead girls that were everywhere um, and not always, um, not every telling, nor, nor should it, I suppose, but not every telling was, you know, challenging um, how I might have seen stories about, again, air quotes, dead girls in the 1980s, um, you know, as, as a little girl watching um, movies and, and TV shows that I shouldn't. Mm-hmm. What about you, Laura? What, were you conscious that you were sort of writing to a zeitgeist at the time? Yeah, um, I actually read a book called uh, Dead Girls by Alice Boland, mm-hmm. which is a collection of essays, and she really unpicks that dead girl trope, you know, in crime fiction, and, um, you know, talking about stuff like t- Twin Peaks, famous examples, and um, how the dead woman's body is always just a prop to explore, you know, the darkness of the male psyche. Um, so I was very, yeah, I, I, I read that book at the same time as I was thinking about this story, and I think that helped me sort of, um, I guess, like get the theory of what I wanted to do in yeah. place. But um, another book I read was a quite old book um, from 1975, uh, Looking for Mr. Goodbar by um, Judith Rosner. And um, I think at the time that that book was released, it was talked about as like a cautionary tale this is what happens to women if they, you know, go out to bars by themselves and have casual hookups and stuff. Um, so it was written at this time and it was just received as, like, don't do this, women. You know, like, this is a, a woman doing the wrong thing and this is what happens to her. Um, and I don't know if the author intended it to be read that way at that time. Uh, but, yeah, I kind of thought oh, I'll try to do something a bit similar to that. Um, yeah, but that book, uh, I think, um, yeah, that was the main thing. It's really yeah. interesting because, you know, I started writing crime fiction in the late 90s and I remember someone, and I was asking that question about why are the victims in crime novels always women? And someone said to me, oh, because it's, um, it's easier to be sympathetic when a woman gets killed. Um, rather than when a man gets killed. So that was like a red flag to a bull for me. You know, I, I wrote a book where all the dead bodies were male. <laughs> that was just my little, yes. But it's, it's what the two of you have done with these novels, which is so interesting, is the crime is actually not the central part of the story. They're very unconventional crime novels in that respect. The solving of the crime is quite unsatisfying if you were reading it for a traditional crime narrative. And I'm kind of curious as to whether you think, you know, it should, should your books come with a warning for traditional crime <laughs> readers saying, hey, don't expect, uh, you know, don't expect what you would normally get from a crime novel. This is going to give you something. This is going to take you somewhere else. Well, there, there, I can say there might be a few Goodreads uh, reviewers who would have liked <laughs> like the sticker on the book. Um, <laughs> sure, because if it's... Um, I always say, um, you know, these days I'm an accidental crime writer. It wasn't what I set out to do, but I'm so um, grateful that that's where I've ended up and, and certainly where I think I will continue to sort of play um, um, at least for the for the next few books that are marinating way in my head. Um, but no, it, I mean, I didn't, and I, 
it, I don't think it was until the editing stage that I realized, oh, this is, you know, this is actually a crime novel that is, you know, it, it, I, all the way through, I couldn't um, answer for, for myself. I'm not sure if it's good to admit, you know, what this book was, what it was aiming to be, other than interesting and, and keeping myself interested because, again, nobody else was waiting for it at the time. Um, and I'm, I'm happy where it's landed, but I, yeah, I do uh, apologise to, to any reader who wanted something more juicy. Um, and I can promise that if they, you know, if they wanted to ever have a chat about it, I do have all of the, like, juicy, gory details. I just, um, through my research, I just, you know, chose not to include them. I think, I think that's actually part of the genius of the book. And it's, it's to the credit of, of the character and your approach to Alice that you don't linger at all on her death. Her death is almost, you know, the actual murder because, yeah, it, it's how, I think it's how you've avoided being gratuitous about the violence at all. Though I did want to kind of get to that point because I think both of you have, have navigated that. Like, there's a lot of violence in the stories. Um, and, in fact, some of the violence in The Newcomer was quite shocking to me. But it was... It was less about the murder than it was about the sexual violence in the mm. book. How did you go about, again, navigating to, to bring us to a place where this was very visceral mm. and easy to imagine without it being gratuitous? Were you conscious of that when you were writing it? Um, I mean, I tried to keep it brief and just stick to the point. So, like, I, I didn't definitely didn't, like, linger over mm. those scenes. I think it's just um, people are struck by, like, the horror of what happens, which they should be, I guess. I mean, there's there's not a way of like tiptoeing around that stuff. It just kind of negates the the seriousness of it. So I didn't want to do that, but also I didn't want to linger. So I yeah, I tried to be just straightforward in my language and yeah. It's very well done. Both in both cases, it's extremely well done. There's also I mean, you almost take it to another step, um, Jacqueline, because uh, and I know we're getting slightly ahead of us, so we, we haven't spoken about Ruby, but Ruby's the other narrative voice in this story. Ruby's the, the ubiquitous... The body was discovered by a jogger. She's <laughs> the ubiquitous jogger. And um, there's... She ends up uh, joining the Death Club, which I'll get you to explain what the Death Club is in a moment. <laughs> but there's a, a really powerful part of the, of the book where they say, you know, we can talk about anything except him. So except the perpetrator of this crime... And I think that was a really powerful moment too because it makes you realise, again, as a reader, that these narratives do risk sometimes. So you get the woman depicted on the worst day of her life and all we know about her is how her life ended, not her, her life. And we get the man kind of almost valorised, this kind of glamorised as this perpetrator. And I think that was really powerful. About so just can you just kind of just respond to that, that, that notion of writing him out of the narrative in a way. <laughs> I mean, it has to be there, I but... I have a good story, but it will spoil for anyone who hasn't read it as to sort of why and how, like, who he was and how, in my head, um, and who how that made it, in some ways, possible to really um, dismiss him, to take away um, what perhaps he had been looking for, which was attention, notoriety, or just to feel something um, in, you know, in his everyday kind of numbness. But it was easy for me, I suppose, with the narrative that I had, my 
lovely yet unreliable Alice to have her in particular say to the reader quite often, I don't, I don't, I don't want to tell you anything else about this right now. And so that was, um, once I realized I could do that, um, and as long as I didn't overdo it, I was going to have a way to, to keep reminding the reader, um, you, you, like, we're not going to talk about, we're not going to talk about this guy. Um, he doesn't, deserve it and I guess that's something that you don't if the, if the victim is already um dead they, they can't come you know they're not going to be able to say I don't want you talk I don't want you saying his name mm. um in, in a in a story that where it was so important for Alice to reclaim um her name and all that symbolizes she was able to say to us and then have you know Ruby sort of synergistically pick up on that like we we shouldn't we're not going to say his name we're not going to give him um and maybe a little bit I was inspired uh, by Jacinda Ardern with uh what happened um in Christchurch and her refusal to speak the name of that perpetrator whose name I couldn't even tell you now and so the little there that's not little that's huge actually huge things like that but they become little pieces, yes. um, little pieces of the story. That's really interesting you say that because I did wonder. I did wonder if the Jacinda mm. Ardern had been part of that inspiration. Um, yes, it's mm. it's it's absolutely fascinating. <laughs> um, Laura, we mentioned before we talked about um, uh, Paulina's mother Judy. So, and you've got this really interesting structure for the story. So, Paulina's voice, or Paulina's point of view is the past, mm. and then you bring us into the present through Judy. Mm. Um, and we sort of follow that investigation into, into Paulina's death through Judy's eyes. Um, so, and you, you do also take, you've got a bit of a roaming point of view happening, mm. you get us into the eyes of some of the other people around Paulina as well. Was that narrative structure in place from the get-go, or was that something you came to? Uh, I definitely knew from the beginning that I wanted to start the novel from Judy's perspective. Um, my idea was, yeah, before we get the body, we get the person who knows that person best and who misses them the most. Um, yeah, so I knew I wanted to have the hours before the body is found and that reveal happen through Judy's eyes. And um, so we have the impact of the crime before we actually know anything about the crime. Uh, and yeah, I knew Paulina was obviously the main character and would animate the story and um, her perspective would be the main perspective. Um, I actually, like, when I first began writing it, I thought I would roam a lot more than I ended up doing. I think it's um, every fourth chapter or so, somebody else. But um, yeah, like, I, I thought I would actually explore like different people all over the island more than I ended up doing. Um, yeah, but I, I definitely, I guess I get bored sticking to one perspective for too long. Um, I liked switching it up and I liked the difference in their tone, I guess. Um, like I felt like Judy's story and um, her point of view, even though it's still third person, it's a bit more reflective and um whereas Paulina it's just like d d d stuff happening all action. the time yeah, yeah. um it's uh, yeah it's kind of curious to, to know whether you actually you had that meter in your head when you mm. were going when you say oh about every fourth chapter there's was it were you strict on that or was it just much more instinctive um I was pretty strict to begin with and then I ended up 
being like, well, this is pointless, this isn't add adding anything to have this character, so why not just do another Judy chapter here? So I, I did, um, yeah, have a few false starts and things that didn't work out that I abandoned. And, yep, yeah. yep. And I guess the other thing I would say about Judy, I mean, the relationship, as I said before, the relationship between her, her and Paulina is so well wrought. Um, the conversations they have as mother and daughter, the truncated mm. phone calls and things, it's just genius. But there's also a really strong way in which Judy's love dignifies Paulina. Mm -hmm. How important was that to you in, in writing that relationship? Yeah, I mean, I think Paulina, like, she's somebody who wants to be loved perfectly by a man and it never works out and like it, it's a mother-daughter love story in the end like um she does have that perfect love for her and it's kind of I mean it's perfect but imperfect because it means like they can exclude other people sometimes uh but yeah you know Judy loves Paulina for all her faults and even like her faults mean a lot to her like when when um Paulina's been dead for a few months. She kind of starts to feel her memory getting a bit fuzzier and her like inclination to only remember the good things. And she kind of pushes back against that because she's like, "This isn't, you know, the true true Paulina." So she she does mm. really, I think, um, yeah, love her for all her faults mm. in a way that no one else can. Mm. Well, it's very it's very powerful. Um, and it's interesting that you use that expression that it's a love story between the two women, because um, it's such a strong central relationship. And really there's this very strong central relationship in Before You Knew My Name as well, which is between Alice and Ruby. And we haven't talked much about Ruby. Tell us a bit about Ruby. And it's interesting that you mentioned at the very beginning when I asked you about the inspiration that you had in your mind all along, the victim and the person who discovered the dead body. But where did Ruby herself come from? <laughs> Ruby, um, she is, well, she, Ruby is um, twice Alice's age. She's probably made twice as many mistakes, um, but so many of them, um, actually, when you get down to it, um, are, are um, similar. They're really quite similar characters, and that was something that, um, that happened quite organically in the writing of the story. In a way, Ruby could be Alice if Alice had lived because I don't necessarily think that Alice would have gone on to have a you know a really kind of so-called straight and narrow uh life after landing in New York but Ruby she finds the body yeah it was always about you know that it, what would the connection be between a murder victim and the, and the person who found their body and i done some research and, and couldn't find um, much in the way of what that connection might be. Um, most um, of the time, these joggers, fishermen, um, people that walking their dogs are anonymous. They're just one line in, um, you know, the, the newspaper article. Um, and it, that worked perfectly as well, because in a way, then Ruby's anonymous. This huge thing has happened to her. So we've got anonymous uh, Jane Doe, because Alice's body is not identified um, when she's found for various reasons. And then you've got this other character who, by virtue of the role that she's played in um, this drama, is also anonymous. Um, and, and again, I'd like to say that was all kind of part of my planning. And, you know, <laughs> it, it, but most of it, you sort of, you think past you, if you write like 
my god you think you know past you later when you're like oh you know that kind of additional parallel between these two women um was is so obvious now um it was there right from the beginning I love Ruby she's my somewhat unlikable character I think um based on a few people's reactions she's not she's not quite as bold in some of her choices as Paulina but she's definitely um you know in a different life she she might have been Yes, she's very, and she's Australian. Did we mention that she's Australian, visiting New York? Um, and she's she, kind of, she is. She's fled there on the tail end of a, you know, again, one of those relationships that you just want to, where you want to shake her and go, come on, can't mm -hmm. you see what's happening here? Um, and again, that makes it very, that also makes it very compelling. But I think what's really surprising, and it's, it's not something I'd, I'd ever considered, and it's interesting, Jacqueline, to hear you say you tried to do the research and to find out you know, what kind of impact coming across a dead body has on a person. But there's a real intimacy to that experience. Like, there is an, an intimacy. It's almost, I almost think, I know this is going to sound like a weird parallel, but of organ donation, it's like when mm. you, it's a stranger, but, there's, but you've shared this really intimate moment with a complete stranger. I guess the thing that I kept coming back to in the beginning, and I still can't really answer that, um, is how long does the jogger spend with the body? Do they wait? You know, if you call, if you call the police, you know, how long do they wait? And is it a couple of minutes? You know, is it, you know, 10? Is it, you know, what, what would that do to you? That's traumatic in and of itself, but what would that, you know, what kind of uh, connection might you form in those last kind of quiet moments of, of, of yours and, you know, that the person who's been murdered life before, you know, sort of the story explodes. And I had found one um, really interesting article um, in, a, in a British um, paper where the man who had found a, a young woman's body, he would go every year and he would put flowers um, at the, the spot by the river and, if, you know, if you got to the um, to that point in before you knew my name, you'll see that there's a little bit of a tribute to that kind of mm. um, Even the cover. ritual. We both have. We are so lucky. We both have such beautiful, uh, such beautiful covers. Um, yes, yeah. they are exquisite. Props to our designers. Well, actually, that's a good segue. That exquisite cover. <laughs> if you want to hold yours up again too, Laura, um, with the great, the the classic Norfolk Island pine, because I did want to come back to that issue of like when you are setting. Um, you're, and, and also, I also put, want to put the audience on notice. This is going to be my last question for now. So if you'd like to get your questions ready, Chloe will be at the microphone um, and we'll go to you in shortly. Can I just remind you that a question does end in a question mark? That's my hot tip. Um, but yes, the sense of place in both of these novels is so rich and so evocative. And both of you, like I feel the love for the places that you're writing about mm -hmm. um, in the way that you've depicted them. Um, and you're, ex you're explicit about that, Laura. You know, mm. you're, you've always, already mentioned it. So how do you reconcile um, setting these kind of violent crimes in a place that you love, a place of the heart? Yeah, it's, um, it's funny because people read the book and they're like, oh, it's so dark, this place is so scary. And it's like, well, I actually really loved the place and had a great time there. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the context is important. It's a crime novel. It's not going to be, like, an ideal version of that place. But also, like, I think Paulina, you know, there's this big question throughout the novel, like, why doesn't she just leave? Like, 
she's having a horrible time. Why, does, why doesn't she go back to Sydney? And it's because she loves the place. You know, she has this like almost physical connection to it. And um, yeah, it's like, I think, um, yeah, that love for the place comes through hopefully in some of her moments in nature and stuff. I know there are like a lot of violent moments in the book, but I think there are these moments of quiet where she does feel happy there. And um, yeah, I don't know, like I don't know how much readers see that with all the darkness going on, but um, I, I did put those things in there. And, and you, yeah. you went back to Norfolk Island again mm. after the 2018 trip? Yeah, I've been back twice. Um, I went back once in 2019 when I was deep into writing the book. Um, I had three weeks there of just writing and it was amazing. Um, I think that trip was really great for just adding detail and yeah. um, I picked up little things along the way. I was staying in a cabin on someone's property so that really helped me imagine Paulina's life when she uh, later in the book is living with a landlady on a cottage on, on her property. Um, the things I ate while I was there, that sort of thing made it made its way into the story. Um, and then I revisited back in uh, March last year. Right. Yeah. I think my, my own experience of doing field research for a novel is there's something really precious about the experience because mm -hmm. you're just attentive in a way that you're not when, you, when you're not conscious of that you're mm -hmm. writing that place. Do you find that? Yeah, and um, at, at the time that I was there, like, I didn't have a driver's license. And um, it's a tiny island, like, it's, like, five kilometres by eight kilometres. But people don't tend to just walk around. You know, everyone drives. It's very hilly. So I was just on foot everywhere, like, exploring. And people, like, got to know me just because, like, uh, there's that girl who walks everywhere, you know? There's that crazy girl walking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, like, I, I would, like, accept lifts from people. People would offer me lifts all the time. And, like, just having those casual conversations with people, you pick up little things like bits of local knowledge that you wouldn't get yeah. otherwise. No, it's, it's, as I say, it's, it's such a rich evocation. Do you, do you, um, how do you feel, so in the, in the novel uh, it's referred to as Fairfolk Island, mm. um, so it's fictionalised, but how do you feel about people in Norfolk Island reading the book? Yeah, I mean a lot of people ask me like, oh what do Norfolk Islanders think about it? And like I haven't had a huge response to it to be honest. Um, like, there hasn't been any hate mail. Um, <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think, you know, like, Norfolk Islanders are not homogenous any more than anyone from anywhere else is. You know, they, they will have different opinions about things, but I think for the most part, people don't know about my book and don't care that much like most people in any other place, you know? Like, sure. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> um, we are ready to take questions from the audience, but while we're waiting for um, someone to come up, Jacqueline, I wanted to ask you about New York. So, similar question to Laura's. I get the feeling that you love the city. Am I right in thinking mm -hmm. that? So, how Very do much you, so. How do you reconcile the violence of the story with the place of love? Hmm. I mean, I think first and foremost, I needed to set it in a place that it could happen and not just the murder, but this this notion of people packing up their lives uh, to, to very different women packing up their lives and ending up in the same place. And um, the, the one city where there was, was and I hope still, um, obviously things have changed a little bit lately, but that romantic notion of, you know, if I can make it there, um, mm. it's, it's in the song for a reason, it's New York City. So in the beginning, it was much more about 
where would it be realistic to take them? And and to be honest, once I got there and started doing some research around crime and violent crime, in particular in Manhattan, um, it's it isn't it isn't or wasn't as common as it it sort of was in my head from things that I had seen on, on again on television and in the movies from the 1980s. Um, and I quickly realized that worked a little bit in my, I guess, awful to say, really in my favor, because this would be a case that would get some kind of notoriety. But yeah, I, I never, I, I just, if anything can happen in New York, like a, a terrible things can happen yeah. as well as amazing things. And I guess that's how I reconciled it. And as I joke, but there's a lot of truth in it. I just actually also wanted to live there for a bit. I knew that, you know, little did I know, and I'm professionally jealous. I'm, I'm glad you got to go back uh, to Norfolk Island, but I'm very um, professionally and personally jealous. I haven't been able to get back to uh, to New York since mm. all of this took mm. off. And um, sometimes have no idea of like what I captured. Um, even really exists. Oh, it comes across as very vivid, very vivid. Um, we do have a question from the audience, though, so I'm going to invite... Okay, quite close. Hi. Hi. Uh, first, I wanted to say thank you to Jacqueline for an incredible book with a refreshing perspective. It made me think a lot about a person's sense of security and how it's developed when they're young and whether they have it or don't and how that changes when violence enters their life. And I was wondering whether that was a purposeful... <laughs> Uh, topic in your book, and whether indeed the newcomer deals with that sense of uh, of security, you know, personal security. Great question, Jacqueline. Do you mm. want? Yeah. So I I don't remember a time when I didn't have to navigate my safety um, as a as a young girl, you know, walking to school um, in, a, in a small town in New Zealand or as a, a young woman moving to Melbourne as an 18-year-old and, and working night shifts at an insurance company and, 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 you know, having to walk home. I was very conscious of um, this idea of um, even when something hasn't happened to you, um, knowing people around you um, who have had those close calls um, and or, um, you know, really awful things happen to them and just this what we would call like a hyper vigilance um about about your own safety and so i wanted to um i wanted to show in the book that um independence comes at a cost for young women it comes at a, a great cost for for Alice Lee in particular and i and i wanted to sort of um say and show how angry it makes me that this is you know that that there is that kind of cost associated with, with a woman trying to just just make her way in the world mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what about what about you laura yeah i mean definitely for paulina like the whole thing is that she is putting herself in these situations that most of us would deem unsafe and um you know she does get blackout drunk she does go for walks sometimes at night like I don't know, those things, like, but she still deserves to be safe. We all do. Um, yeah, so I, I really wanted to explore the question of, um, yes, we are all entitled to be safe, but then there, there are these things that, you know, oh, you did that, you shouldn't have done that, which pop into your head even, like, I, I was walking home the other day and it was, you know, broad daylight and, like, I, I got followed and it's just like, oh, I shouldn't, shouldn't have worn those shorts, you know, those, like, things that go through your head sometimes and the ways you can blame yourself and blame people around you when things happen to them and it's just like, well, 
sure, you know, but we also take risks all the time in life and nothing bad happens. Um, mm. Yeah, so that was something I really wanted to explore. Mm. And we, I mean, we see that debate play out almost every time a woman is killed mm. in a public place, which, you know, as we know, are the exceptions to the rule of violence against women. But, mm. you know, there's always some cop who says, oh, it's a reminder that women shouldn't walk through parks at night. Mm. And, and then there's an outcry saying, well, why should that be the case? And I, yeah. again, I think both of you, both of you make us question, as readers, make us question those narratives in a very powerful way, in quite different ways, but in a very powerful, um, powerful way. Mm. And in the guise of a great story, I really hope that, you know, what I'm really hoping the audience takes home from today's session isn't just that these are really cleverly, um, very relevant book, cleverly written relevant books. They're great reads. Both of these books are really great reads. They're compelling reads. It's not like you're going to come out the other end unmoved. And I think that's a real power of the writing. We've got another question from the floor. Yeah. Um, Jacqueline, I'm just interested to know whether you considered giving the ubiquitous jogger a male persona. I... I didn't actually. It's a really good question, and I've not been asked that. I I didn't. Um, maybe on some level, um, I hesitate to say this for, for some aspects of Ruby's storyline, but maybe she was, um, you know, for a first-time novelist, she was me a little bit. Not not in all the ways, and not in some of the obvious ways. Um, so um, perhaps that's the reason I didn't. Um, but no, it was always um, wasn't always Ruby. But it was it was always um, another woman um, who found the body. Interesting. Do, do you think that that was because you felt that a female ubiquitous jogger would be more sympathetic to the situation of finding think, uh, finding a, a dead woman? I think. I mean, I, I mentioned before the the poor gentleman who'd found a woman in the UK, and that one sort of story that I held on to about you know, the grief that he felt for this young woman he'd never met. So possibly it was more about um, the story and what I could, you know, how I could spin out this parallel life of of, um, of this other woman. And the I do think finding the body there is um, that that level of I identifying with that could have been me you know what if that what if that was me um was always going to come if it, if it was a, a woman and a woman also on her own when she found the body and so her own sense of safety is then um threatened in a way that wouldn't be unfamiliar to her as you know with the things we've all just been discussing however it would be so heightened in this moment because this is the moment that the stuff that she's been imagining actually um becomes real that's a really interesting point. I was thinking, you know, as you were speaking, Jacqueline, it's, there's a sort of there but for the grace of God moment, isn't there, for mm. Ruby, which you would imagine would yeah. be very different if it was a man stumbling on a dead woman's body for all the reasons could that we've be, discussed. Could have become another sort of hero journey, which I think, you know, we're both, um, you know, working really hard to take the narrative back yeah. in our story. So maybe it's that as well. It's such a good question. Thank you for asking. Yes, it's, these are definitely not hero journeys and uh, there's no kind of good cop, bad cop and as I said earlier, in many respects, the resolution of the crime is, well, it's, it's, it's I would even argue that, you know, I wasn't convinced in your case, Laura, <laughs> that, that the perpetrator was actually the guilty party and yeah. I think yeah. 
there's a parallel, isn't there, in, in Janelle's Yeah, I wanted to keep that here. ambiguity there, you know, like, because, yeah, you know, a lot of cases it is. Um, the victims' families do live with that question, like, did this person actually do it? Did they get the right yeah. guy? And it's almost always a guy. Um, before we wrap, and I invite you to uh, the signing table where Laura is going to be thrilled to sign copies of her book for you and Jacqueline will be at home gnashing her teeth that she can't be here. Oh, um, I have a terrible signature, so in, in a, as much as I'd love to <laughs> so meet everyone, that, that, that makes me feel a little bit relieved. <laughs> but you can still buy Jacqueline's book here in the bookstore and, um, and remember fondly the conversation that we had while you read it. But I just thought we'd finish up by asking you what you're working on next. Jacqueline, you've hinted at a crime novel. Mm-hmm. I am deep in um, structural edits for book two and um, I wrote the first few drafts really quickly. It is, I would say, it. I think of it like a maybe like a big sister to um, okay. Before You Knew My Name in that it deals with a lot of the same themes um, but from a, uh, a very different perspective. And it's set in, in New Zealand. Although I was going to ask you where the setting is. Terrified by that and excited. Um, and I've, I've been back here, uh, you know, thank you, um, COVID, um, th throughout the pandemic. And so um, it felt like a really interesting challenge to set a book here, but with a main character who is not actually from, from New Zealand okay. and sort of play with my sense of dislocation as well. So I like stay that. Tuned. I think that gives you the freedom to explore place when you bring an outsider mm. in, in a way that it's different if you're writing from insiders. But what about you, Laura? What's, what's next on your agenda? Um, I don't know. It feels like a bit of a mess at the moment, but I'm, I'm having fun. I'm working on new stuff. Um, it's not crime. It's uh, Basically, I'm, I'm calling it like interconnected short stories or novel in stories at the moment. Um, a lot of them take place in Perth and that kind of came from me missing home throughout the pandemic. But then I, I also have a lot of travel stories as well mixed in. So um, yeah, it is about place a lot. That I guess that's a commonality with mm. the newcomer, but it's, it's not crime at all. It's um, more like explorations of girlhood, I guess. Um, yeah. Fantastic. But, yeah. well, I'm looking forward to I'm looking forward to both of those books. I will definitely I am one reader who you're guaranteed to sell your next books to. I thought they were absolutely brilliant. Please join me in thanking Jacqueline and Laura for today. And as I say, please join um, Laura at the signing desk after the session. Thanks, Jacqueline. Take care of yourself. Thank you so much. Lovely to meet you. Bye.